this is Annie, and welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. And today, Samantha is once again joining us. Um, Howdy, hey. Hey. Uh, thanks so much for being here, as always. And as always. Yes. yes I like that. This episode, um, I'm really relying on you a lot because right. this is something that I think uh, you have had a lot of personal experience right. with. And, and you and I, when we were having a discussion on what these episodes and what the series should look like, I, I was very passionate about wanting to talk about my peoples. Mm-hmm. The caseworkers out there, the therapists, the uh, trauma workers, the second responders, um, because I think we don't talk enough about helping and caring for those people who often see the worst in the worst of society. So, yeah, here we go, because I'm going to talk a lot about personal experiences. I hope you're ready. <laughs> yeah, uh, because we're we're talking about empathy and having too much of it, because on this if we were looking at a, an arc of our mini series, we're kind of on the on the other end. We're like towards the end of the season, right? And a lot of people do after they go through a traumatic event, they do feel inspired, or even like through survivor's guilt, or there's something that makes them want to help others, so that right. they can either prevent it from happening to others, or work help other people who've gone through something similar work through it. Right, and that can be something very triggering, uh, re-traumatizing. Um, so, yeah, this question of empathy and can you have too much of it? Can you have too much? And uh, you and I, as you were researching, I remember you were like, oh, my gosh, this and this. And I was like, yeah, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a problem. Well, before we get into it, trigger warnings um, for death, trauma, secondary trauma, and Suicide, right, and um, specifically with those, we're talking a little bit about uh, how these can affect secondary trauma and trauma can affect your daily life. And we t- we talked about that earlier with like um, how it comes out and the symptoms and a part of that and some of the uh, bad coping ideas mm-hmm. would be some of these things that we're talking about. And it can happen without you being the one being victimized, like personally victimized, right, and. I, I I love a dictionary. Yes. A, d- a dictionary we definition. We need to understand. People don't know. Right. So let's let's define empathy. And this is from dictionary.com. The psychological identification with or vicarious experiencing of the feelings, thoughts, or attitudes of another. Um the brain, I, I almost went on this whole thing where I got fascinated with the science of it, but right. the brain developed these mirror neurons specifically for empathy, to recognize if someone was a friend or an enemy. That's interesting. I know, like, a part of that question was, is it genetics? Is it environmental? Can it be learned? Whatever. But it it comes down to it can be both. Right. Obviously, with everything. But there's also those. I mean, they talked about those who have less empathy could actually have a higher risk of autism. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, yeah, it's really fascinating to see part of that is to be able to read others. And that Mm -hmm. would be why you would read if they're a friend or an enemy. Right, and that's obviously a simplification of a very right. <laughs> big, big thing. Yes, but I wanted to include it in there because I did find it so uh, fun to read about. And one thing I want to include as well is the difference from sympathy, sympathy versus empathy. 
So sympathy is the factor of power of sharing the feelings of another, especially in sorrow or trouble. Feeling compassion or commiseration. Every time I hear that word, I think of the Blink-182 song. <laughs> All the small things. Who's right. out there? They right. know. <laughs> and 90s reference. There we go. The 90s? Or 2000s? That was 90s, right? Okay, I'm old. I actually am not sure. Um, So practicing good empathy means creating a safe space to identify and understand the feelings of others as opposed to straight mirroring. Right. A lot of that is also being able to dig into yourself and kind of remembering if you went through something similar, that emotion rather. Mm Mm-hmm. And there's a couple of types of empathy. There's effective empathy, which is the I know how you feel empathy, you can feel what other people are feeling um, and experience compassion for them. There's cognitive empathy. This is knowing and understanding the emotions of others, getting a more full picture of how they feel. And then there is excess or hyper empathy. So I would call this like the sponge equivalent of Mm -hmm. empathy. Or I imagine if Mantis couldn't turn off or control her powers in Guardians of the Galaxy, this would be her. Right. But that's all theory. <laughs> um, so you suffer from the emotions of others. Exactly. And um, I was going to say, to kind of go back to the scientific portion of that, it could be a superpower or it could be a hindrance for sure. If you could truly feel with that person feeling much like Mantis. Mm-hmm. That's a superpower, right? Yeah. Like, would that be okay. She almost, she See? had Thanos. Yeah. Oh, my god. She did until... Peter Quill. That Quill. (laughs) He ruined everything with his hubris. This is great, too, Marvel. (laughs) I'm just going to talk all about this now. I'm with you. I'm here with you. But yeah, and also with the effect of empathy, I was going to say that's one of those that kind of um, can actually hinder a conversation. If it comes back to the, I know how you feel, I know this, I know right, that, right, which right. I know is a mistake some therapists and some uh, caseworkers have made mm-hmm. in trying to be overly empathetic, right. but kind of, it almost dismisses the others because it becomes too common. You know what I mean? It feels like, oh, you feel that way? I'm not an unusual ca-, or something like that. Not that you sure. want to be unusual, but sometimes it overtakes uh, the conversation and you need to be with them in that moment instead of, eh, you'll get past it. I've right. been there type of a thing. Right. Um, and then the excessive or hyper empathy, which you and I talked about. I was like, yeah, I struggle. I'm not going to say I could completely be diagnosed with this, but I know for me when I watch movies that have intense, humiliating things, I cannot watch it. It took me... So when was The Office originally out? Oh, dear. Uh, A long time ago. 2000... Something. <laughs> 12. <laughs> That is not correct. Okay. I was like, it's not 2012. (laughs) That is wrong. (laughs) Okay. Let me look it up. Anyway, um, when uh, that show came out, I could not watch it because I remember watching the first episode and cringing so hard that I immediately had to turn it off. Like, my face turned red. My heart kind of had this anxiety. And I was like, nope, nope, nope. Now, yeah, it came out in 2005. Last so I was year, only seven years you were way off. <laughs> so yes, The Office came out in 2005 when I originally tried to watch it because everybody was in love with the show. Mm-hmm. And I was like, no, oh my God, no, this is the worst thing ever. And for me, The Office English version is even worse. And I still can't get past season one. I don't think I passed the first three episodes because oh, it was the so... British one. The British version, I was like, I can't do this. Yeah, that one's 
mm-hmm. awful, cringe, like beyond cringeworthy. Like I physically cannot sit to watch it. And now, like in 2000, I think I watched it for the first time last year. Now I watch it all the time because I know when to fast forward it. Yeah. That's how I watch it now. Mm-hmm. Any cringeworthy, I just fast forward it through. So usually, <laughs> is it like every episode, so two usually, minutes yeah, long. <laughs> pretty much all I'm watching is like the whole antics between um, Dwight and Andy and uh, Jim mm-hmm. and Jim and Pam. Like that's pretty much the whole. <laughs> right, Michael's been erased. <laughs> Michael does kindly does not exist. Essentially, um, they've got no, no manager. <laughs> no, no. Uh, who's Michael? Um, mm. But yeah, that's how I watch things. But also, when I go to movies, if I don't know what to expect, um, I take. Even if it's like 90 to 100 degrees outside, I'll have a jacket or a blanket so I can hide underneath it. Mm-hmm. And I'll cover my face and cover my ears. Like that's the level that I get to. Mm-hmm. So it's I definitely understand that. And even in work, like I will have moments where I read a case. And I have I think I've told people one of the things I have to do is read about their past um, charges and or events or whatever the situation was to put us to that moment. So if there's been a crime committed, there's been that. Like I... I feel the intensity of either the victim or the kid so much that I have to put it aside. Um, and it, it can break me down to the point that sometimes I've been questioned, is this a good job for you? But at the same time, at least partially to me, like, no, but it motivates me too. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I know that. And I know I'm not the only one. We all have different ways. Because I was talking to my coworker today and I asked her, how did she handle it? And she just said, literally says, I make myself forget. Wow. Because that's the level of that excess empathy that you Mm -hmm. don't know how to quite turn it off and you have to figure out your defense mechanisms. Right. Um, And I found this quote I wanted to include from Emmett Fitzgerald. I had never been told that empathy is a finite resource. You can run out. As a normal psychological response, you cannot give of yourself again and again and again without replenishing. Right, and I would think that's where we would talk about burnout and you right. do, you talk about burnout and and I know you mentioned this later but compassion fatigue yes um and how it does wear you down and and part of that is the mere fact when I look through some of the studies people like doctors and nurses and who are hands on mm-hmm. have I think their their rate of suicide is like 31% which is not as high as I thought it would be mm-hmm. and honestly social workers are even less that surprised me too cuz I assumed social workers and caseworkers would have that mindset, but I know addiction is pretty high. Yeah, relationship failures mm. are pretty high for yeah. social workers and caseworkers and therapists and such. Um, but it is it's a it's one of those things that you do eventually run out, and it gets to the point that I call it being um, desensitized. Yeah, I mean I don't call it, but it's being desensitized to what it is and becoming more and more crass and being more and more hardened. Yeah, and I hate that because that's being in social work for ten years. I feel like nothing affects me as much. Mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong, I still have breakdowns and, and I still look for the good. But I do feel like I've become uh, a little more harsh and more critical mm-hmm. of today's society because of all the things that I've had to try to learn to deal with and or empathize with and or even try to fix. Yeah, and um, one of the the thing you said about your friend um, kind of making yourself forget reminded me of something I read and it was an account from a, I think it was a new nurse. And mm. she witnessed, I think, somebody die. And she was so upset and, like, was trying to pull herself together and saw the nurse who had been there longer than her completely fine. And she asked that nurse, like, how are you, how did you get to this point? I, I, I 
need to have this control that you did. And right. and the other nurse said to her, I wish I could still feel things like right. you could. Right. Um, and I think that's a pretty powerful, powerful story. Right. And it, it becomes a constant thing. I remember when I started with uh, the children, family and children's services and being an investigator, um, one of the first things that I learned is all people coming in with bright eye, bushy tail hopes yeah. of saving the world. And don't get me wrong, that's the whole reason I went into social work. Uh, I wanted to save the world. I want to save the kids. I want to help these women. I want to empower others. And then a year later, I'm like, no, I'm putting Band-Aids on, you know, gunshot wounds, essentially, yeah. and hoping for the best. Or I'm picking, I mean, I remember using the term picking the lesser evil all the time because it literally was, do I take this child away from something that they're used to with a parent that they grew up with, or do I put them into a new situation that's a better environment, but they are taken away and they have nothing familiar, as well as because they're older, they're probably never going to find stability Mm -hmm. again. You know, it's kind of like at least it was a bad stability, but it was stability or new stability without, without the actual grounding of family and caring. And I remember just having to sit with the judges. Like, I had one of the best judges that I worked with, as well as lawyers, being like, what is the better choice? Mm -hmm. And oftentimes, I would look and say, it's better for them to be with a family with us, looking on, hopefully, instead of yanking them out of a placement um, and putting them in the situation. And, you know, I want to give a shout-out to all the foster care parents, too. Like, I don't think enough credit is given to the ones that are really great. Because I'm going to tell you there's some not great ones, just like in anything else. But the great ones are taken advantage of, and they are the first to be burned out um, immediately. And I'd say burnout probably six months in. Because if we find, if a DFAX worker or a family children's service worker who's a foster care worker find one good family, they will try to use them all the time. Right. Because we know what to expect. We know they'll do a good job. And oftentimes it's so taxing mm-hmm. on them with the very little support they get. And I'm going to tell you, majority of the people who think you get money, that's <laughs> not a thing. Yeah. Um, it, it can be a buildup. Like if you have 10 kids in your home and you have <laughs> some kind of backing, maybe mm-hmm. things, it, it can happen. It has happened. But oftentimes this is not about money. And when we look at these foster parents and the good ones, we run them into the ground. And I could see that they are probably one of the first to be like, I can't do this anymore. Yeah. And that where that's where we leave in such a mess of not having enough homes for some of these teenagers who are just trying to find something safe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, while empathy is <laughs> right generally a good thing and can help you not get replaced by robots in the future, according to research. Oh. It's one of the few things that robots have not figured out. That's what I said. I argued with someone about that. I'm like, social workers will not be replaced. Um, caseworkers and therapists will not be replaced by uh, robots, but the people have argued with me. I don't understand how they would learn empathy. Well, now that you said that, they're going to figure it out. Oh, no. <laughs> but, oh, yeah, no. It just took you saying it on a oh. podcast. That's all they needed. Um, I, I believe it's... Uh, yeah, it's like a complex social job that requires some kind of right empathy. Anyway, that's a different <laughs> podcast. Um, and we're going to talk about the droids. Well, we should. Yeah. But right now we're talking about empathy. And yes, too much of it can be a bad thing. And we'll get into that. But first, let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. Thank you, sponsor. 
Empathy can become a bad thing if it starts to impact your mental, emotional, and or physical health, which we've been talking about all these things. It can lead to high concentrations of the stress hormone cortisol and feelings of depression, guilt, pain, exhaustion, being overwhelmed, all of which can lead to burnout, especially Mm -hmm. if you take on the responsibility of fixing someone else's problems. Yes. Which is, yeah, yeah. They have to, yeah, yeah. I don't want to fix their problem. Um, I think I I may have used this word before, and I realized later that a lot of people don't understand what it is, parentified. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's when which a child uh, takes on the role of a caretaker or the parent. Um, So you'll see this with uh, families who have drug issues in the home. I would would run into that all the time where I would see the parent would be passed out, but there's two kids, a five-year-old and two-year-old, and the five-year-old would be taking care of the Mm -hmm. two-year-old. And also you and I talked about the fact earlier in our own trauma when people would be like, oh, you're so so adult, you're so mature, which is not necessarily a healthy thing. And to me, it is very unhealthy um, when a child can't be a child. That's Mm -hmm. what I like to say. Um, Because for myself, uh, I think I had talked about this earlier too, when my mom and I were talking about my uh, relationship with her growing up, and then my brother, who is their biological child, and I am the adopted and was brought here when I was seven. Our relationships were so different. Mm-hmm. And I remember um, at one point she was trying to talk about um, the brother, you know, being used to being the only child, the youngest child, and, yeah. me, you know, whatever. And she was like, you were already an adult when I got you, mm-hmm. is how she put it. And she was right. Because I was always in survival mode. Mm -hmm. And so for me, coming to a home does not make me um, a child again. That doesn't immediately happen. And I think part of my empathy comes from wanting to take care of myself as well as others because that's what I did. That's what I've known. Like, that's the only thing I've known. And I see that in a lot of younger kids as well. And if you kind of look at, like— Oldest kids, the older kids, yeah, they're much like the bossy ones. Uh-huh. They're much like that as well. And I think it's the caretaker coming out in them. Maybe it's the empathy of uh, wanting to care for everyone mm-hmm. and making sure they're safe and feeling like that's that part of their responsibility. But yeah, that's an interesting thing. And the, I think I just went on a tangent. The middle child, where do I fall? Oh, <laughs> trying to keep nowhere. the peace. <laughs> middle children try to keep the peace. That's what I have seen. I, I would agree with that. Well, I, I don't want to make any sweeping generalizations. No, that's a big case, generalization. In my case, yes. That's what I see. So if you do have too much empathy or you're burning out from empathy, some things you might start doing or notice yourself start doing is um, you might— Start pushing people away if you're feeling their emotions. That makes sense. Um, If you're suffering from their emotions. Uh, You might walk into a room with people and experience a shift in emotion without knowing why. Before anyone has said anything to you, Um, you might feel physical pain. You might not be able to stop thinking about the other person's pain. The thought of going to an event with someone with an emotional state that will impact you might fill you with dread. Yeah. Um, Honestly, (laughs) I know people who have too much empathy that are not in my field can't be around me. (laughs) (laughs) And I know, I'm like, yeah, I understand that. I'm exhausting. I'm I'm like the negative Nelly of the group because if I've had a rough day, which I walked in today, I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm a mess, y'all. It literally becomes taxing for others around me. And I I recognize that. I think that's part of the reason I'm also an introvert. I'm like, 
y'all can't deal with me today. In <laughs> 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 which I have to recognize, yep, I've had a really stressful day or I've had a really hard week or I've had a really traumatic week and I can't figure out how not to let this affect me on a daily basis or let my every every moment, normal moment, be affected by this. And that's kind of like, I think we talked about it in the trauma episode about our coping mechanism. Mm-hmm. I have two or three or four people that I trust that know me well enough that they can handle that or yeah. also they can tell me to stop mm-hmm. because that's part of that too. And because a few of those people are social workers and or in the field as well, mm-hmm. and they also have their own dilemma and we, where we both have to be like, okay, I can't hear about this right now. Right. And that's that line. Um, and, and honestly, I definitely felt that physical pain. Yeah. I definitely had my, I think I told the story about my neck giving out for weeks at a time because I was so stressed mm-hmm. and I was so worried about um, these children dying and or something happening because I didn't do something fast enough mm-hmm. or being blamed for it. And it, that came from like not only did these individual things happen, but it was definitely a buildup. So you get stressed out. I stopped sleeping. I stopped sleeping. I, my neck started hurting. My sure. neck started hurting. I started getting tense. Everything hit into, and I'm shut down. Mm-hmm. Same thing up there. I used to get sick all the time, and I mean, like, flu symptoms and all of that, and it mm-hmm. was a lot to do with the fact that I wasn't taking care of myself. We all know sleep is very, very, very important, and if you have anxiety attacks, panic attacks, whatever, and you can't sleep, yeah. that disrupts everything. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's part of the whole empathy portion is how do you let it go? Yeah, And I know later on we're going to talk, we talked to Dr. Jane, Mm -hmm. who I'm always like, I'm already fascinated by, and I've been talking about people to her. No, let me try that again. I've been talking to people about her Mm -hmm. because I think she's fascinating. I think she's got some really groundbreaking um, concepts when it comes to PTSD and treatment of PTSD, which again, we're going to talk about later. But um, I, I know that the whole idea is you have to be able to separate yourself but it's almost impossible sometimes because you have that, again, that idea that you're going to come and fix something. Yeah. And when you fail, it is the, one of the most painful blows I think mm-hmm. you can go through when you really stacked up in, my life is built here and I want to do this for these people. And holy shit, I failed mm-hmm. again. It's just so heartbreaking. Yeah. And it's kind of one of those things that, again, leads to burnout. And you just want to quit because you just can't see the better or the good ending to any of it. Yeah. And we talked about that a little bit in our episode around women in the medical field and how high the the burnout rate is. According to the DSM-5, hyper-empathy syndrome is associated with personality disorders and ongoing difficulty to function due to the distress from the syndrome. So this is a a thing. It's like recognized. Um, And here are some of the key symptoms. Breakdown of identity and loss of social skills. Mood swings. A need to solve everyone's problems to cultivate the image of being valuable and needed by constantly doing favors for others. Finding it hard to say no to people for fear of disappointing them. uh, Lack of boundaries. Overprotectiveness to an extreme, going so far as to impact the autonomy of others. And all of this can lead to resentment from feeling that no one understands you. No one get they they think you're being overprotective. Don't they see I'm just doing I'm just being nice. Um and it can, yeah, impact your immune system. Yeah, so I feel personally attacked right now. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> this is an intervention for you. Just from reading this list. And you know what though? I mean, 
yes, these things are very real and these things are uh, very personal to me because I will absolutely, this is me to a T. Um, I'm a bossy one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm a no, no one. Hey, 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 hey. I no, agree too quickly. Sorry. Yeah, stop that. Um, no, I. Uh, it's funny because in my little apartment complex, it's like a Ford quadplex. I'm the mother of the group to the mm. point that they go on trips. And I'm like, can you text me when you make it there? I have no reason to. We don't live together. I barely know them. Well, I do know them. They're really good friends. But like, they're neighbors. That's it. Yeah. But I feel the need to make sure they're okay. I'm also the same one that goes around parties. Have you had enough food? Did you eat this? Did you want to try this? How about I give you this? Like, mm-hmm. it's just an overall need to make sure you're comfortable and that you're happy. And because if you're anxious, I'm anxious. I see it, and yeah. I'm nervous, and I hate the feeling of, like, someone not feeling welcomed. Mm-hmm. That gives me nightmares. Like, they, when I was younger, I would cry about that Aww. if I felt like someone felt like they were left out. Like, Aww. I was in turmoil about all of that. But... And I'm not going to stick it to all of the workers out there, all of our therapists and social workers and teachers and nurses and medical people. I, I know I'm leaving out so many who are on, pretty much in combat all the time in their jobs. But it's so hard not to be these things and trying to be effective. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's like kind of like how do you find those boundaries? And, and you do. And you have to. And the reason we want to talk about this is because, again, people who have gone through trauma, like myself, want to be in a field that can help others. And I can guarantee, uh, if not 50%, way more probably of social workers and people who are in um, protective type of services and including nursing and all of that, it's because they want, they have gone through something and they want to make something better, Mm -hmm. right? And I think part of our problem in that is we have put so much of our identity in doing good Mm-hmm. That if we don't see the results, especially in a lifetime, sometimes I feel like I've, I've never seen a result, a good result, um, that you have failed in life, mm-hmm. in the things. So for me, it goes as deep as to say that I've used my trauma because I want to say I went through these bad things to do these good things. And then when I don't have the end result of doing good things, it just sure. feels like I failed. And which is absolutely untrue. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have to tell myself that all the time. I have to tell other people that all the time. And, and I would tell our listeners, those who are out there who know exactly what I'm talking about, you have not failed. Just because in itself that you care and are trying, that has done so much more for our society than anything else. That, that's probably why we haven't completely crumbled mm-hmm. into the nastiness that it could be. Just to go on my tangent. <laughs> the the patented Samantha there tangent. There it is. <laughs> and I'm having to have a lot of those, especially when I'm this passionate. I I remember once somebody asked me, like, if you could go back to this this event and not have gone through it, would you? And I I had to think about it for right. for a minute because I I was like, well, I'm not. The obvious answer would be yes, but then at the same time, I don't know what I would have done or right. become. Um, so there is that kind of weird, Right. if I went through this, at least it meant this. Right. I mean, it went as far as, I'm, I'm sure you, I, I know you already said it, that at least it didn't happen to someone else. Yeah. Like, yeah. That's, that's the underlying bit as well. Like, I, it, which is absolutely not true that you were meant to handle this situation. Right. Because we're going to throw out that whole, you're only given as much as you can handle. That's not necessarily true. <laughs> Sometimes you're just given really shitty hands. Um, and that's 
what happens. But in the end, usually people who've gone through these things come out. I mean, for me, and I know like for you, at least it wasn't someone else. At least it wasn't your siblings, as you had spoken about. And at least it wasn't other kids in the, you know, orphanage for me. That's how I think things through. Um, But at the same time, yeah, it sucks. Mm -hmm. I still don't want to remember that. No. Nope. (laughs) And going back to this whole hyper-empathy thing, science is looking into why that happens. And all of the research is pretty new, but it points to it possibly being a genetic disorder. Oh, really? Well, Mm -hmm. I I did read a case um, when we were looking through this about a woman who went through a brain injury Mm -hmm. and coming out with hypersensitive to the point that it was physically hurting her, Mm -hmm. uh, this hyper-empathy. And beforehand, she did not have any of those types mm-hmm. of symptoms. So that's really fascinating. I would love to know more. And what exactly is completely wrong with me? <laughs> this syndrome and too much empathy in general, particularly in women in heterosexual relationships, can lead to women justifying the actions of um, abusive or psychopathic partners. People who are, who are too empathetic might be unable to recognize or too ready to excuse predatory behavior. Right. And then at the same time, we also want to talk about the women who have children in these relationships. And oftentimes, I've heard it many times, they're good to my kids. Uh, mm -hmm. Um, And or they're protecting their kids. And or it's financial. As we've talked about previously, the financial thing is like, yes, all these bad things are happening to me, but without him, my kids could not do A, B, C, and D. Mm -hmm. You know, and that is absolutely part of that whole empathy thing. Again, protecting others blaming themselves, um, and then just feeling like, I deserve this, maybe. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And yeah. it's such a whole, again, also these partners understand that right. and use that and manipulate that, as we've talked about previously with grooming. Mm-hmm. Um, they know and they can see it. And this is why I talked about the fact that domestic violence, as well as partner violence, can be a thing that we looked at as um, a manipulative thing and why we say that is grooming. Mm-hmm. and and. Part of that is that personality factor of, okay, well, you can see she's easy to manipulate. I can groom her like this way, and this is where we go. Mm -hmm. And too much empathy would be a very good point in what you see. Mm -hmm. And related to this, a tendency to overgive um, might come from a past abusive relationship or growing up with a narcissistic guardian. It can also result from being in a community that focuses on giving. I read in places like a religious community. Or I would say women in general being socialized to right. be that way. And we talked about religion before as part of, like, grooming as well. Mm-hmm. I know we did that. But like, that honestly comes through um, when you see, especially in ways in the past, that women were told not to leave their husbands. Literally, when they talked about the Bible, the only reason a woman could leave a man was for adultery. And that's after being, like, confronted by four or five. And they could not—and the woman— could not remarry, mm-hmm. or that would be considered considered adultery. They don't talk about the physical abuse. They don't talk about physical violence. They don't talk about rape as a thing. You know, all of these things that we know right now that is wrong, it's never really addressed. So, therefore, I know I have seen in my lifetime where women were told to stay with their men mm-hmm. in an abusive relationship because you made a vow to God. Like yeah. I literally have heard that, and it's the most unreal thing to me that I just I, I don't quite understand that and honestly we could even talk about today's um, abortion laws coming through mm-hmm. talking to about the fact that women who are going to be made to have a pregnancy or be charged even if it was against their will mm-hmm. 
that's absurd. And that's a very religious idea. And this is the whole level of, like, from what I can gather, empathy. I'm not going to say empathy. Of course, there's a whole underlying turn with, like, a patriarchy and, and this the whole idea that women can't be trusted and women's bodies should be monitored, whatever. But there's also this bit where the women feel, at, especially women who have had children, will say, well, you've never had children. This is murder. I would never do this to my child. So that that level of weird empathy comes to an unborn being, I guess, just for all intended purposes, mm-hmm. a fetus essentially, and going beyond the regular, yeah, but what about the woman? What about who, again, should be trusted? Never mind that, but the empathy goes on to the fetus. And that's from the women in itself, which I'm thinking, but you're a woman. You want someone to tell you whether you can be trusted with your body? I mean, yeah, it gets, goes into that level to me. That's an odd example because it's almost like an example of having no empathy for the woman. <laughs> um, but all this empathy for the the unborn child and, frankly, men and, right. like, the family. I mean, yeah. and that, that's because the women that, some of the women that I work with and just being in the South and just being with an old, you know, in an old-fashioned town where they are supporting this bill, which seems ridiculous in itself, especially they're talking about criminalizing doctors, criminalizing women who um, may have uh, late-term abortions, not because they want to, but because they have to medically. Mm -hmm. And they still are talking about penalizing them. Um, You see these impassioned bits from these other women who talk about how, why don't they care about the children? This is murder. This is murder. And I, there's, it's really hard to argue murder. <laughs> Let's just leave that out there. Uh-huh. Um, but that's where they're coming from. And a lot of them genuinely break down on that note without thinking about the women perspective. Mm-hmm. The, the adult female who is having to go through this, what you may not understand the background of, mm-hmm. whether it was incest, rape, or whether it's medical problems that's, that are happening. They just don't give allowance to that. They just think about that unborn child mm-hmm. or fetus. I'm just going to leave it at that fetus before mm-hmm. they're actually developed into sure. a mature child, whatever you want to call it. Right. And we've been talking already about um, certain careers that are higher risk for this um, empathy burnout. And, yeah, it is people in kind of caring fields, and it, it's something that is called frequently compassion fatigue. Right. And I, I pulled this out from one of the articles written in a social work um, magazine talking about uh, too much empathy or how to self-care. Mm-hmm. Um, and they talk about secondary trauma is a reaction to dealing with other people's situations. Um, but burnout is related to the job environments in which we work. And the stresses attached to these jobs and, and requirements like paperwork or poor supervision or support, which is a constant when you have to have these giant results with very minimal support, it's impossible. Mm-hmm. And that's when burnout happens because you really can't do much. Um, and when burnout and the secondary trauma are both present in an individual, is to be said um, they are experiencing compassion fatigue. Mm-hmm. Um, so just exactly what it is. You're 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 just tired and you just want to give up and you just don't want to think about it and you just don't care. Mm-hmm. That's kind of where it comes down to and you become numb um, and you become jaded. But there is um, something they were talking about also that there is something called compassion satisfaction 
um, and being satisfied with the doing the work of a carer. In other words, um, gratification for helping others makes the strains of the work worth it. Uh, and it's not uncommon to see social workers continuing their jobs because um, even after the breakdown, and that was me, I literally had a breakdown when I was a child abuse investigator, went and did nannying, and then I came back because I missed uh, advocating. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's still really hard to continue day to day sometimes. And um, I think one of the things that doesn't happen enough, now when I tell people I'm a social worker, the response is usually, oh, wow, that's hard to almost pity. Mm. That is not the best reaction to get sometimes. But, I mean, I think we need to do more. I would love it if people truly heard what was happening and instead of, like, deeming them the bad guys. Because if you watch, like, I'm really old. Law and Order, like SVU. The social workers were always the bad guys. They were never. They always lied, or they did this. Like it was awful, or they just didn't care enough, or they weren't compassionate enough, and they were just too cold. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, come on, guys. Why do you have to make them look like the bad guy here? You know, of course. What's her name? The main character. Never seen it. What? I know. I I exist outside of space and time. I've never seen an episode of Law and Order. Anything. Well, Olivia <laughs> was her name okay. in the character. Um, she was always the most compassionate one, caring for the kids and all of that. Uh-huh. And there's an episode Ice T has with um, his name is Finn in the character. It's been a long time. Okay. Um, has a battle with one of the social workers, and she gets blamed for this death of this child. Like it was this whole big thing, and. I hate that. And even in the news today, you read so much about how, and don't get me wrong, it, it may have absolutely been the worker's fault. Why didn't they check up on this child? Why didn't they do this? Whatever. But they don't understand the backlash of what things happen, like how the judicial system works. Mm-hmm. And the fact is, we honestly, caseworkers cannot do much without the approval of someone higher up mm-hmm. at all times. But that's what you see. You see them as the bad guy. And I think stuff like that. And then also... That's one of the big cuts that happen. They don't get paid much. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't get any kind of rewards, and they don't really get many raises. I don't think there's been any raise in the state of Georgia in a while. Mm-hmm. Not even cost of living, I don't think. But that could. I haven't been in, in defects in the children's, the investigative side in a long time. But I know when I worked there, there wasn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's part of the problem is, when, yes, this is really nice. And I would love to fix things, and I would love my work to be this. But if I can't take care of myself, and if I'm being blamed and all the time that I'm scared to death of being blamed for something Mm -hmm. that I can't control, how do you keep going? Right. And how do you get that compassion satisfaction? Mm. Passion satisfaction. I like that. Yeah. I think Paige from Charmed was a social worker. And I I think Christy Alley from It Takes Two. (laughs) For the Mary Kate Ashley fact oh. of the episode, I don't know. She she worked. She was involved somehow. I was gonna say, if I'm a witch and I have powers, that'd she be fantastic. Oh, it would be fantastic. I could be. do so many things with t- some telepowers. With some telepowers. That's like you're calling in, oh, <laughs> teleworking. But yes, if I had some powers mm. in general, oh gosh, sure, Absolutely. I could do all the things. Or whatever your power allowed you to do. Well, yeah. To do that thing specifically. But we do have oh, a wow. little bit more for you listeners. But first, we have one more quick break for a word from our sponsor. Mm-hmm. 
we're back. Thank you, sponsor. So we wanted to include in here tips on practicing good empathy because a lot of what we've been talking about is the negative side of empathy or the extreme. Right. Oh, that's the too much empathy, what this could look like if you have too much empathy. Right. But if you want to practice good empathy, um, you want to practice self-awareness, openness, and non-judgmental listening. If you notice that you are reacting to something emotionally, then you'll want to take a moment, take a breath, clear your mind, and focus on how you want to feel, which is open or like listening. Right. Yeah. And, and again, I think, again, one of the things that we talked about with in general with trauma and PTSD and being triggered, which is kind of what happens here, sometimes meditation, doing yes. the one, two, three yeah. technique or being grounded, it actually is helpful for that as well. Mm-hmm. To prevent burnout, experts recommend setting up boundaries. Take care of yourself, have compassion for yourself, um, and be mindful of your needs. Recognize toxic behavior in others and learning to keep a distance and learning that that is okay. It doesn't mean you aren't empathetic, but you're keeping your identity and emotions from getting mixed up with others. And I call this responsible empathy. um, Because if you get burnout or become numb, you can't help others as successfully. Yeah, and as we talked about before, the fact is if you're not caring for yourself, how are you expected to care for others? Mm-hmm. Um, and all of that, again, is to remember that you are a person mm-hmm. and you have flaws and you can make mistakes and it's okay. And I think that's one of the biggest things is to forgive yourself and to allow yourself to be human. It's mm-hmm. really hard when you want to fix things. It's really yeah. hard when you feel too much. I mean, believe me, I beat myself up every day. I sometimes sit down and just go back over the wrong things that mm-hmm. I did, which is a horrible practice. Please don't do this. And if you do, do what I also do. Hug on to your dog. Mm-hmm. If you don't have a dog, look at pictures of what makes you happy, mm-hmm. whether it's to read fan fiction, play some yes. D&D. Uh-huh. Um, actually, you and I have gotten into some card games. Yeah. I'm, I'm now jumping into that world. I feel like I have to start concentrating a little more so I can be <laughs> a part of the crew now. Um, but yeah, do, doing things and allowing yourself to turn off your brain. Uh, and I know I talked about babysit your brain movies type of thing. Mm-hmm. So turn that off. And it's so hard. And whether it's sometimes I like to play Candy Crush. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I actually love word seeking things, those are word finders, yeah. love those, mm-hmm. and just sitting and watching reruns where I don't have to think about anything else, but I can just concentrate on whatever nonsense is happening. Mm-hmm. And that's really important too. And it's important to, re- again, be empathetic towards yourself mm-hmm. and remember, again, you're not God, mm-hmm. a God. You're not a superhero as much as you would like to be. Um and even the superheroes have bad days. We saw oh. this on all of the Avengers movies. <laughs> I mean, every movie is like a superhero's bad day. <laughs> right. And and being, um, caring for yourself and keeping a distance, like you said, and shutting things off doesn't mean you're being numb or, or callous. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that can regenerate you. And to literally, one of the big things we've been talking about in our own field, taking a vacation, turning your email off turning your settings off, go out of the country if you can afford it, and turning your phone off. If not, literally giving your phone, your work phone, and your computer to someone else and walk away. Mm-hmm. Like, And I, I will say, up until last year, I never did this. I never took more than two days off. And even then, I had my phone on me all day, all times, because in the back of my mind, I'm like, this is 
affects a child's life. Like it yeah. doesn't just stop because I'm on vacation. Yeah. But because I wasn't doing this, I was failing them mm-hmm. because I was becoming more and more angry. I became resentful mm-hmm. um, at my job. Mm-hmm. You know, and then the fact that I had to invest so much and I, I would look around, I'm like, people are doing this like me, which is not true at all. That was me being one of the hyper empathy symptoms that we talked about earlier. <laughs> um, but yeah, just being able to walk away mm-hmm. physically and and literally from whatever it is that has taken you down this bad path. Right. And we are planning a beach vacation. We are. Beach I'm vacay. so excited. Um, other things that have come up a lot in our conversation around good coping, but it also useful here. Things like, yeah, meditation, yoga, exercise, or, uh, yeah, something that helps you let go of the, your absorbed negative emotions um, and helps you practice mindfulness. And, again, community is really, really important. Um, and I, I have a really great community for different aspects of my life and my coworkers. Uh, I think I've talked about the coworker I had when I was at uh, as a child abuse investigator. We literally would take Saturdays and go hiking all day, yeah. um, and that and we would talk about whatever was happening. But then we would also talk about our personal life, and mm-hmm. it was really nice and releasing. Um, even now, I uh, will get together with my coworker. We leave the office, go to lunch and have a long lunch where we can actually talk about our day, what's going on, and checking in on each other. And then when I get with my community and my friends, when we can come out and I can give like a 10-minute, oh, this is the worst, Mm -hmm. and then come to, oh, but this has been really hilarious. This is what's happening here, and this is what's happening here. Mm -hmm. Like It's really important to to not isolate yourself, again, when we were talking about. And it's really easy to do so, especially when when I feel like I'm being toxic, not only to myself, Mm -hmm. but could be to others. Or sometimes I just don't have the energy to talk, which, again, being alone is good, too. Mm-hmm. Like you just need to have balance yeah, and, and know yourself and know what works and what, what works when. Mm-hmm. I did um, last weekend, I did the, the week hike to heal, right. which you heard from the founders in a previous episode. Um, but the, they did this thing I loved, which was you had to speak for two minutes only positive things in your life oh, to no. someone. And you couldn't do, you couldn't have any qualifiers in it. You couldn't be like, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was really cool. And if if you ever are experiencing a, a, like a bad day or something, I would recommend it. It was like surprisingly hard, but yeah. Oh, yeah. Those are difficult (laughs) when you have to be nice to yourself out Mm -hmm. loud. Yeah. And you're not used to doing that. Yeah. It's kind of like, Um, (laughs) I like my hair today. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I was like, I've watched all the Marvel movies. Another. Okay. Uh, But in the context (laughs) of trauma, I I wanted to include here as well, one of the main reasons I never have spoken up about it before is because I didn't want other people to feel bad. I I felt this responsibility for making everyone happy. So I think that's another it's almost like anticipating somebody's empathy. Right. So that's another thing. And and my D&D character, who is based on a character I wrote in a, in a book, she was an empath. Like, she could feel everybody's, what they were feeling, and she suffered for it. Okay. She suffered, and it pretty much killed her. So. Mm. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, again— um, that is obviously an extreme version, but Very. sometimes, yeah, I definitely feel that. I definitely have moments where if I hear something mm-hmm. or if I see something or if I know about something, anything that has to do with um, child trauma that has to do with adoption, fostering, it gets me. 
Mm-hmm. It gets me every time. Um, obviously, it's so close to me anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel it. I feel that over again. It it shuts me down sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember I was asked, I think I was offered a job for adoption agency, and I just couldn't do it. I was like, mm-hmm. this is too close. I, yeah. I don't know if I can actually survive doing that portion. Mm-hmm. And for me, I working on this show, I, I built something that I called the callus, which I think is that it's essentially the distance because it was so difficult, and some days I would leave work wrecked um and we wanted to close out here with some tips from dr shelly jane who wrote a whole book that is (laughs) about ptsd called the unspeakable mind and she had some tips right i had actually i asked her because i think it was so personal for me because all of these Mm -hmm. things were fantastic new ideas and new concepts that she was bringing out and she was talking about this as in like a physical medical field. So I'm like, that's completely different. To the usual, when we treat PTSD as a mental health thing, Mm -hmm. she's taking it as a physical medical thing, which is fantastic because that's exactly how it should be looked to get to the root of a lot of it. But um, during that time, I did want to ask, what is your advice? Because she talked about she'd been in this for 20 years, Mm -hmm. and that's unheard of. And she still loves it. And she does a passion project about it which was fantastic. And some of the stories in there were heartbreaking, mm-hmm. as you and I talked about. And so one of the first things, one of the big things I wanted to know is what would you say to those who are in this field and who want to remain in this field? How do they care for themselves? So here you go. Trauma is infectious, right? Anybody right. who through the course of their profession is routinely exposed to traumatic situations like bearing witness to trauma, whether it be like first responders, whether it be military, whether it be... Um, you know, mental health professionals, healthcare professionals, I think we have to recognize it for what it is. You, we are at high risk of being exposed mm-hmm. to trauma. This is like my 20th year of being a doctor. Um, actually, last year marked 20 years. Wow. And, you know, I feel like um, as I was reaching that 20-year mark, I feel like there was a lot of residue that had been building up. You know, in your clinical experiences day to day when you're trying to take care of patients, you know, there's, there's what happens in real time, right? You meet them, you make an assessment, you make a diagnosis, you come up with a treatment plan. But there is so much that happens in that visit. There are so many other dimensions that get touched on, moral, ethical, philosophical, emotional, psychological, not only for the patient, but for me too. And they often don't get dealt with in real time, right? Mm-hmm. You don't have time to deal with everything. You, you have to kind of do the work that needs to be get done to kind of get things moving, um, you know. And um, when those other dimensions do not get attended to, I think um, issues start to build up. And it's like a stubborn kind of residue, a stubborn stain. You know, you start to lose your shine. There's definitely something burning inside of me that needs to get out. And I think from a kind of creative angle, being able to draw on 20 years of clinical experiences and kind of relive them and hash them out through the process of writing was really valuable. I felt like I could leave a lot of stuff on the page. I think I emerged feeling lighter more rejuvenated and um, hopeful that, you know, maybe I can do this for another 20 years. Um, so, so for me, in answer to your question, I think the writing is what helps me personally. One thing I don't think healthcare professionals and caregivers, what we don't do enough of 
is just admit that what we do is really, really hard, right? What the work we do and the circumstances under which we operate are really hard. And I do feel like we live in this world that celebrates the trivial and that doesn't uh, value doing complicated things where you're not necessarily going to get a massive return on your investments. So I think there's this cultural tone where we have to reclaim that what we do is important, must be done, but it's really, really hard. So I think setting these realistic expectations is really important. And then, of course, that's why it's really important. You have your own ways of caring for yourself and getting any, any attention that you might need, you know, mental health-wise, health-wise. Um, and so self-care, I think, is an absolute non-negotiable if you're going to do this type of work. By doing something for yourself, you, you're, you're going to survive another day to do something for somebody else. So it's not being selfish. It's having healthy boundaries. That brings us to the end of this episode. And uh, for for our self-care bit, my D&D fact, um, this one should have gone at the beginning, but uh, recording times are hilarious. Oh, hilarious. (laughs) So I'm actually pretty new to Dungeons & Dragons. And um, when we first started playing, I was super nervous because I was like, Improv. You were so really nervous. Like you texted me about that. I, I was like, Samantha, I can't do it. Um, and there was somebody in our group who I I knew, but I didn't know her very well. And I <laughs> was nervous about playing. I think there's it's one thing if it's a group of friends that you, you right. know really well, but if right. you throw someone in there, you're like, oh no. Um, but together we are uh, we're a bit impulsive, as I've said. And our motto is Fools Rush In. And I had koozies made for us in the Game of Thrones font that say that. I want one. Oh, you want one? I want one. Ooh, maybe I could sell these. Yeah. No, Game of Thrones would sue me. They would sue you, but I just want one. Okay. I will gift you one. I feel like we should give a listener one that's like super into yeah. it. We need to do like a game. Oh, we are going to do the get-together, so maybe we could give a couple away then. Oh, that's true. Uh, very, <laughs> what a fun story to tell someone. I got this from a podcast where she plays D&D and then, <laughs> anyway. Um, I think it works. So the, this player that I didn't know very well uh, in what I think our first session with her um, we were trying to figure out this cave thing and there was a small opening with running water and the only way it was the only way into the next room. And she could uh, turn into animals, but only animals that she saw. And she had seen, like, a crab. So she turned into a crab, um, but she couldn't crawl up the wall. So we had to roll, because that's how D&D works. You roll dice. We had to roll to see if we could successfully throw the crab like a Thrisbee. And we succeeded. (laughs) Roll to throw crab is one of my favorite rolls we've ever done. Was she so excited about this, or was she like, what was her response? Because I can't imagine saying, I have this idea, and then like, oh, "Oh, yeah, I'm going to throw you like a Frisbee. And then you're like, okay, cool. I think it was her idea. She is, I call her the chaos player. All right. Um, She always has the most hilarious creative ideas. One of them is she wanted to fill my bag of holding with water and then turn into a whale. And I can't remember why, what purpose (laughs) that would have served. (laughs) As a person who's never played D&D and still mm-hmm. don't quite understand D&D, all of these things that are in my head, <laughs> I, I wish you could understand how, like, dissected each of these things are for me that I'm like, what? 
this well, doesn't belong to this. And wait, I have to cut it and put it, paste it. You're going to come to one of these I am sessions, going to come to one of these. And you'll see. You'll, I'm excited. It'll, it'll be fun. I'm excited. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my part to the fact uh, we're talking more about peaches. Um, I actually put a really cute Instagram story of her in... Um, in our little neighborhood, I put a little flower crown on her that she ate immediately <laughs> after course. the pictures were taken uh, and made a mess in my living room with it. That's mm-hmm. my fault. Uh, but I got an offer. She was like, they were like, this little company was like, oh, we love your dog. We would love for you to model, have her model oh. our stuff. And I was like, first of all, this doesn't look real. Uh. But if I'm going to get some free dog things, sure. Mm-hmm. So I emailed them. They're like, well, it's 25 bucks. I was like, okay. No. no, 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 no. Mm-hmm. First of all, my dog doesn't like to wear things. This would be for my benefit more than her benefit. Secondly, I don't have the money because mm. I have to pay for this dog's grain-free food uh. versus, as well as like the grain-free trees and right. her baths and all. Nah, this this dog eats better than I do, mm-hmm. <laughs> essentially. <laughs> yeah. So, nah, I'm not buying a $50 handkerchief thingy to go around her neck. A scarf? What are those? I think it's a handkerchief. Is it a handkerchief? <laughs> dog scarves. Dog scarves? I'm sure they exist. <laughs> I'm trying to think of it. But anyway, I was really excited that I, my dog was going to be a model, and then I felt very, very tricked. I love the idea of you being like a... Dog, dog mom model? Yeah, like, you know, at the beauty pageants with the parents, but it's like just peaches. It's just peaches. Yeah, I like it. The entire time. I yep, like and it. her looking at me like, what? Mm. What? She would hate it. Yes, she would. If you have any self-care stories you'd like to share, we would love to hear them. You can email us at momstuff at howstuffworks.com or you can find us on Twitter at momstuffpodcast or on Instagram at Stuff Mom Never Told You. Thanks, as always, to our producer, Andrew Howard. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks to you for listening. Send me your stuff. I want to know how you care for yourself, social workers, and people out there. Stuff Mom Never Told You is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.